have your Bibles with you. Open up to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're, uh, we're wrapping up 1 Peter this morning, just in time to uh, have one Christmas uh, service uh, before Christmas gets here. But uh, finishing, finishing up 1 Peter this morning. And, um, you know, this, this text in particular has been a, a really uh, a big blessing for me as I've been just working through it this week. Um, the Lord's been doing a, a unique work in my heart uh, as a result of this text. And, uh, and I'm excited to, to be able to share some of that with you this morning. So uh, as you're opening, I just want to talk about pressure. Pressure over a, a length of time has the ability to, to wear on things. It has the ability actually to wear things down a little bit. Uh, so after prolonged exposure to pressure, we find generally that things become weaker. So after pressure exerts itself on a particular object for a long period of time, that thing becomes weaker. And something that has been weakened is something that is vulnerable. So something that has been weakened by pressure is something that is vulnerable. So, so your car, uh, your brakes uh, exert pressure on a consistent basis. And over time, those brakes wear down. Those brakes, your car is actually now vulnerable when those brakes become weakened. And the same is the case with your tires. The pressure on your tires on the road over time, you see the treads on those tires kind of wear down. Eventually, you have to get new tires on your car. This is kind of the way this stuff works. Something that has been weakened is something that is vulnerable. This is the same thing, like we use pressure cookers. We put meat in the pressure cooker. The, the meat becomes more tender and juicy. It pulls apart easier, that kind of stuff. It's vulnerable. It's able to be pulled apart. It's, it's not as strong and that sort of thing. Uh, and this is true of human beings as well. This is true of us. Pressure over time weakens us. In fact, research suggests that the worst decisions you will make in your life will be made after 12 p.m., so, uh, so after you eat lunch, that's when you make the worst decisions that there are to make because you've been awake now for a certain period of time. You've had the pressure of decision-making up to lunchtime, and now you have to make decisions after lunchtime, and unfortunately, you make poorer decisions after lunchtime. We find this uh, judges in parole court. They actually evaluated the way judges made decisions in parole court, and by and large, judges just, uh, after lunchtime, they just went with the status quo ruling because it's kind of the ruling that everybody else took they didn't even really look into the case that much they just kind of went with whatever anybody else said after lunchtime whereas before lunchtime they would actually evaluate the cases they would actually pour themselves into it and so this is like this is how decision fatigue works the pressure of having to make decisions wears on us and so we have to take we have to go to sleep sleep for a few hours wake up to kind of reset the whole process for us but prolonged pressure it weakens us and it, it makes us vulnerable so here's the other thing about pressure. Pressure uniquely actually has the ability to make things stronger in some cases. We see this uh, with, with coal, like you put coal under the earth and you pressurize it for a long period of time. And over that period of time, that coal becomes a diamond, right? It becomes something much stronger. It becomes the hardest uh, kind of material that there is. Nothing else can like break a diamond, can cut a diamond. A diamond is the hardest substance, right? So, uh, so pressure over time actually has the ability to make things stronger, but we're dealing with this, like, this idea of pressure because, um, you know, the churches that Peter was writing to, they were churches, they were Christians, they were people who were under pressure. 
They were under the, the societal pressure that existed around them. They were being excluded from, from uh, societal things. People, their, their social circles were making fun of them. They were doing things called maligning and reviling them. They were saying awful things about these Christians. These, some of these Christians had lost their homes, had been uh, kicked out of their cities. Like, so this, this were the experience of these, these churches and these Christians. And, and Peter's overall emphasis throughout this entire book, and, and honestly, he's just picking up on Jesus' overall emphasis, is that as we follow Jesus, we will face pressure. So Christian, guess what? Peter wants you to know, Jesus wants you to know, in this life, you will face pressure. In this life, you will face pressure. And I'm not just talking about the pressure of, like, everybody faces pressure in their life, right? Like, this is just a part of living. We have decision-making pressure and this kind of stuff. But no, I'm talking about pressure because you're a Christian. You will face pressure because you're a Christian for your faith. So, uh, Jesus talks about this, John 16, 33. This is what he says. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus is guaranteeing them right at the outset, listen, uh, you are going to face difficult things, but in the midst of that pressure, I want you to take heart. I actually want you to be able to have peace as that pressure goes up. Actually, pressure, in your case, when when you undergo pressure, it's not going to be an opportunity to wear you down, but, but if you trust me, if you lean into me in the midst of pressure, I might actually make you stronger in that pressure. That's the implication. So you know what? Pressure, pressure necessitates a response. So the question is not, will we respond? We, we have no choice but to respond to pressure. But the question that we have to answer is, how are we going to respond to pressure? That's what we have to figure out. So will we respond in a way that makes for peace? Will we respond in a way that is, that is absolutely confident in the reality that Jesus has overcome everything that there is that, that he needs to overcome, that we need to overcome? He's already taken care of it for us. You know, it's interesting because nothing has the, ex- the power to expose us, to expose the things that we trust, to expose where we find our peace. Nothing has the power to do this like pressure does. So we even talked last week about, you know, how God, uh, he allows, you know, Christians to be tested, to allows various pressures to, to come across Christians' pathway so, so that he can see how we will fare, so that he can actually help reveal to, to us what's going on in our hearts, what we're actually trusting, and so that he can help to strengthen us for the future, to stand firm. And, and these churches that Peter are writing, he, that he's writing to, they're under some pretty extreme pressure at the moment because it's becoming increasingly difficult for them to operate in any way in society. And, and so Peter, as he's looking at the situation that, the, that they're in, he is, he's really focusing in on what's your response going to be? How are you going to respond to this pressure? And so to examine the pressure, I want to take a look at specifically how he ends the book. So we're going we're gonna to be start in verse 1, but I want to go to verse 12 of chapter 5 real quick. And this is what it says. It says, by Silvanus, Silvanus is the guy who's writing for Peter and and delivering these uh, letters to the churches. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in him. He wants them to stand firm. This is what he wants their response to be. 
He wants them to stand firm. And then he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. I want to focus in on this idea of Babylon real quick because it's going to reveal the kind of pressure that the churches were under. So, so back all the way, if you remember, all the way back in the first sermon in Peter, we talked about Babylon and how Babylon was another way to reference Rome. Peter was actually referencing Rome. This is, uh, and, and the reason, I want to talk about why he chooses to use the word Babylon to refer to Rome. Because Babylon has two meanings in scripture, two, two kind of broad meanings. The first meaning is that it was a literal city. Babylon was a literal city, uh, and it had multiple iterations throughout history. So, uh, so it's like, you know, Chicago. Chicago's a literal place. It was a literal place in the 1800s, but Chicago in the 1800s and Chicago today, they're very different places. They're, uh, they're very different locations. In fact, there was a fire that, like, burned Chicago up, and Chicago is essentially like an entirely new city. Multiple, multiple iterations of Chicago over history. So this historical, physical city that existed... Uh, it was also a symbol, and it, it exists as a symbol throughout Scripture. And, and this symbol is uh, for, because for God's people, Babylon is the pinnacle expression of human rebellion. Babylon is the pinnacle expression of human rebellion. So, so this, uh, through, throughout Scripture, Babylon, it's it, beyond just the idea of a physical city, this physical city represented for God's people um, this uh, idea of rebellion against God. So, so Babylon is a symbol of humanity's unified ambition to dethrone God and declare independence. That's what Babylon is. This is the place, the kind of atmosphere that these churches are existing in. And, and, and the Hebrew word for Babylon, if you read it in Scripture, it's the same in Genesis uh, 11 as it is in Isaiah, as it is in any of these other places. Uh, it's just Babel, Babel. So you hear about the Tower of Babel in Genesis. It's the same sort of idea. You have this king, his name is Nimrod, which I think is the coolest name in the world. And uh, he's this first world leader. He's a kingdom builder. Uh, he comes from the line of Cush. He's living in Ethiopia from the line of Ham, from the line of Noah. And his first large-scale venture was he was going to build a tower to show how great people were. And you know how he was going to build that tower? He was going to do it on the backs of tons of people. He was going to uh, exploit humanity for the sake of building this tower. And he was going to seek to conquer the world by conquering men. This is who Nimrod was. This is the kind of person that he was. And and, and that idea that started all the way back in Genesis carries through in Scripture that we see uh, the Babylonian people or the, the Babylonian leaders, are, they're taking charge of the whole world. They're oppressing the world, and they are this pinnacle expression of human rebellion against God. And so you know what? Like, Peter's writing to these people, and these people who are living in this Babylonian area, it, it, area, it brings pressure especially when what you want to do is you want to live differently than the world around you, because that's what he's been calling them to. And he said, as you try to live differently, as you try to live these ways, uh, it's going to create pressure for you in Babylon. So even, even the churches that are sending greetings to these, these other churches out in this place that Peter calls Asia Minor, when Peter uses this title for Rome, he's reminding his readers that even the Roman church even as they're sitting there in the, like the locus, the, the primary point in Babylon, even those churches are under pressure. So we're going to examine uh, these pressure points. 
and how we're called to respond as a church. Because as the culture on us creates pressure, there's a certain way that we're called to respond. And so pressure point number one is this. We're going to look at pressures on the elders. Uh, So if you're not an elder this morning, guess what? You get to listen in on a conversation that I get to have with our elders and a conversation that the Lord has been having with me all week. So uh, so 1 Peter 5, uh, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed. So he's getting ready to give them an exhortation, and this is what he does. He references his own authority. So when he says, hey, I saw Jesus, I saw Jesus suffer, he's saying, I walked with Jesus. I have authority now to be able to talk to your elders, because the elders are the ones who have authority in their context. So he's saying, elders, I now have some words that are very important to you. I want to share them with you. What he's about to say carries some weight here. So, um, so, Alliance Bible Church, your elders in this room know this, but, but today I'm going to remind our elders that pressure has an incredible effect on us. In fact, pressure is always pressing upon us, and I want to give you two categories of pressure that exist for elders. Number one, there are external pressures. We'll call them temptations. So uh, these pressures tell us that we need to compromise what's important for what's comfortable. We need to find identity in our position rather than in our Savior. We can misuse and abuse power. The, there's a temptation to change our message to better reach people. There's a temptation to make decisions that go with the flow rather than expand the kingdom. There are temptations, a series of pressures that require us to be faithful in the midst of all of these pressures, right? And these are, these are temptations that exist. And, and so the reality is, as, as, go the, uh, as goes the elders of the church, so goes the culture of the church, that's what he's acknowledging. So he wants to start with the elders and, and talk about their response. So to those external pressures, the second category is internal pressures. Okay, so everybody who's a parent in this room, uh, you have to make a big decision after your children are born. That decision typically is, okay, what are we going to, like, if something ever happens to us, where are our kids going to go? If we ever, uh, you know, something, something awful, you know, whatever it might be, or say you just have to go along for, uh, go away for a really long time, who are you going to leave with your kids with? Like, you're going to really make sure that you trust the person that you leave your kids with, right? You're going to really make sure that that, uh, that person is trustworthy, that that person is reliable. Um, you know, I remember having this conversation even with my brother and his wife, like the, that just as they were processing, okay, who are we going to leave our kids with? It's really important. We want to make this decision well in the event, the event that something ever happens to us. You want to give, you want to give response, you want to have it be somebody who's responsible. And this is what Jesus does when he selects, or I mean, you know, when elders are put in place. Jesus leaves his kids with elders, like he leaves his kids with shepherds, people to to take care of them. This is how kind of the, the structures have been set up. This is what we observe throughout scripture. You know, while he's gone, he puts his kids under the care of individuals who he expects to love them and take responsibility for them. So Hebrews 13, 17 says this, and this will just open our eyes to that internal pressure, that responsibility that we have to take says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So, so at the end of the day, like, 
individuals who are part of this church. You're not the only one who has to give an account for your soul and your actions. Actually, uh, at the end of the day, the elders, too, have to take responsibility before the Lord for, for what happens to individuals in this congregation, for the kinds of ways that they walk out their life. That's the implication of what he's saying. So, so, so elders, we actually take ownership of this responsibility. And, and we don't just take ownership of it, but he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, that we are excited to take ownership of this responsibility. So get this, you know, every, everyone is under pressure. Everyone is under pressure, but he ends by addressing elders because he knows that the elders are the bottleneck of faithfulness in the church. So, um, so if the elders don't remain firm in doctrine, he, know that he knows that the church won't remain firm in doctrine. If the elders don't practice mutual submission, he knows that the church won't practice mutual submission. If the elders don't pray, he knows that the elders won't pray. If, if the elders don't practice purity of life, he knows that the church won't practice purity of life. If the elders don't engage with scripture, he knows that the church won't engage with scripture. If the elders don't love each other, he knows that the church won't love each other. Like just as the elders go, so goes the church. And so there's this uh, intense sort of pressure that Peter is aware of. And so elders, Peter, he has an exhortation for us. And this is his exhortation, verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He says, take care of them. You know, Peter actually, he heard a similar thing from Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead and uh, Peter and Jesus are sitting there on the beach, Peter had denied even knowing Jesus three times while he was going to the cross. Peter and Jesus, they, they get to the beach and, and they have this conversation and, and Jesus asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter responds, yes, I love you. But each time, Jesus' response to Peter, he said, okay, then feed my sheep. Take care of my people. This is the responsibility I'm giving you because Peter, I'm getting ready to go away for a long time and I'm gonna leave my kids with you. And so essentially what Peter is doing here at the end of 1 Peter He's recognizing something for himself. He's getting ready to go away for a long time. Peter is actually, uh, he's preparing this church for, for even the, like the apostles being gone, the apostles not being around anymore. And so he says to the elders, elders, feed the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God. So then he actually gives some instruction as to how we're to do this. Verse two. Exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So uh, elders, the way that we uh, exercise our job, the way that we carry out our responsibility is by exercising oversight, and specifically in these ways. So, so you know what? Peter has watched for a long time local churches under pressure, and he's watched the ways that, they's re, that they have responded to this pressure, and, and particularly he's watched the way that elders have responded to this pressure. And, and what he's actually pointing out here, the things that he's, he's talking about patterns that he has seen and the way that elders have led. He's talking about things that he's very aware of, and, and so he's talking about these temptations. He knows that as pressure increases, the elders are going to be inclined to follow the route of some of these temptations, and so he wants to counteract those temptations, so we're going to look at three of them. The first one is this, the temptation to appease people. This is not under compulsion, but willingly. 
the temptation to appease people. So this is a great temptation in leadership because uh, what a leader can be tempted to think is that I am primarily responsible for the happiness of the people who I lead. Uh, we can tend to, to think that um, our leadership is reflected in how people feel about our leadership and whether or not people are happy about our leadership. And so, therefore, it's really tempting to make decisions simply to make people happy rather than to glorify God. So, so I, I say that, but at the same time, like, should elders be understanding? Yes. Should elders have empathy? Yes. Should elders communicate clearly? Yes, absolutely to all of those things, but our primary uh, decision-making factor is not what makes the most people happy, but what brings God the most glory. That's our primary, de- primary decision-making factor. And so he's saying, willingly make these decisions. We don't make these decisions. We don't even step into the role because it's something that people want us to do primarily. The primary reason is because it's what brings God the most glory. So that's temptation number one. Temptation number two, the temptation to benefit. Uh, This is shameful gain, what Peter calls shameful gain. So this is, uh, this could be position. This is not just money. We tend to think of this in terms of money, but this could be position. This could be influence. This could be power. This could be the desire to be liked or be seen as important. Peter's looking at all of these things, and he's throwing them into the category of shameful gain. And I just want to like say something really clearly. So Christians, we're called to die to self. This is like our primary calling in life, right? Which means then that to be an elder is to eagerly lead in dying. To be an elder is to eagerly lead in dying. So, so you, you might be inclined to think, elders, that like what we have to do is we have to, to get something that's ours, get something that belongs to us, get some sort of position, whatever it might be, but, but Christians, like we are called to die to self, and elders, we are the foremost example of what that looks like in the congregation. So the thing that we are called to be eager for is not what we gain through position, but, but actually what we sacrifice. We are called to be eager for sacrificing for the body. The third temptation. The temptation to misuse and abuse power. So, so domineering, this is what he refers to as domineering, is the act of using authority, whether it's positional authority or social authority or spiritual authority, to force behavior. And this is not a category that, that elders are even permitted to walk into. So churches who, who operate with leaders like this, I, like if you just watch the way that it works, they'll achieve success for some period of time. They'll actually like achieve some really great success in some cases, but, but uh, if you have a person or group of people who are leading by domineering, eventually what happens is that there is fallout from that. Things start to fall to pieces when, when leaders operate in this way. And it can actually cause a whole lot of damage, and so, so the answer Peter says is not to use, not to domineer with your authority over people, but to lead by example. So that I don't expect anyone to do something that I am not willing to do myself. I don't expect uh, anyone uh, to do something that I have not already done. You know, those are the categories that we think about. So, so, you know, we don't, this is why the elders, like, 
We don't just stand here and say, okay, everybody, time to move the chairs. We'll just, we'll just stand up here and sit, sit on the stage while you work out that, that out, right? But no, we all participate together in the work. This is, this is even why in our purpose statement, we said we are working together to restore hope. That working together piece was really important for us because we understand that, that we all play an equal role here. We all have something to contribute. Okay, so he says, uh, these temptations, these are very real temptations for those in any leadership role, but particularly for elders, you add spiritual pressure on top of that and spiritual responsibility. And he's saying, now we have, you have to fight to resist these temptations, and, and here's why. Here's the motivation behind it. This is what he says, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So you talk to, to anyone who's ever served as an elder or even just anybody who's ever served as a leader in church, a, a, a director, a ministry director, whatever it might be, we'll all tell you um, it has its joys. Absolutely, there are joys to serving the Lord in, in these roles, but it's really hard. It's really hard. There are a number of pressures that come along with these roles that we've been given. It has its challenges and the pressures are very real. And for anyone who is leading or who has led or who will lead in the church, every single hard thing that we face is worth it. Because at the end of the day, we see Jesus face to face and Jesus gives us an unfading crown of glory. And it's like essentially in that moment when we meet with Jesus there, we, he gives us new eyes to see all of the hard things as opportunities that just give glory back to him. So that's the promise. That's why we do what we do. Okay, so that's just that's the end of my conversation with our elders. We're going to now look at what uh, Peter thinks that all of our response to pressure should be. Our response to pressure is humility. Verse five says this, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. So a uh, major aspect of American culture has been shaped by something that we'll just call youthful rebellion. Uh, youthful rebellion is uh, just a, an, an influencer for us, particularly, you know, you get teenagers who go around and t- tell us how broken the authorities are, how the world is falling apart, and they have a lot of hormones as well, and so they get very loud, and that's why you get songs in the 80s like Twisted Sister, We're Not Gonna Take It, like this kind of stuff, right? Okay, and it, and it just seems anecdotally, as I observe culture, um, that this is becoming an increasingly stronger narrative. This is something that we're seeing happening more and more that we have to kick back against the system because the system doesn't know what it's doing. The system is broken. And, 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 and so one way that we have of getting the things that we want or the things that we think we deserve is to kick back against authority, is to rebel against authority. And that's just that, that's something that we observe in our culture. And what this is telling us is that that's not the story that we are allowed to tell as the church. Rebellion cannot be the path to anybody getting their way here. And that's why he issues this call to the church to submit to the elders. So 
And he says, you who are younger, there are three potential categories here. He could literally be talking about those who are older in age versus younger in age. Uh, He could be talking about those who are spiritually more mature, those who are less mature. But then, I mean, I think the category that just makes the clearest sense is he's, he's using older to refer to elders, those who are given a spiritual authority, and then everybody else in the church. But all of those options are very plausible. Regardless, though, This is what it it says. It says that the church is called to submit. Now, that's under the assumption that the elders are doing their jobs well. You might ask the question, okay, so I'm supposed to submit even if my elder is not doing his job well or not carrying out his authority in a good way. And and, um, actually, it's interesting. The, The Bible actually gives you a pathway that gives you spiritual authority in those situations. There are actually two key pathways, and so we're not going to dig into them right now just simply because we don't have time, but there are two, two passages I would really encourage you to look at, Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5. Matthew 18 and 1 Timothy 5, those, that's, that we acknowledge that this is a place where we mutually submit, and those two passages give people pathways for how they are to, so you have a problem with something that I'm doing? You come and talk to me about it, right? That's like, that's step one, and then, and then if, it, if it's still a problem afterwards, then, you know, come and bring somebody else who, you know, who sees it the same way, and then have a conversation with you about it, and if the problem's still persisting, you know, we'll bring the other elders into the conversation. We'll, we'll, We'll talk about it. These are, there are actual pathways prescribed for how we're to carry these things out. And so, so I just encourage you as, you, as you're like, okay, so you're saying I'm, I need to submit to an elder who's not doing their job right. Actually, no. Like, you need to talk to that elder if you think they're not doing their job right. You need to have a conversation with them. And you need to process. You need to follow the process that's just prescribed in Scripture. Okay, so... Nonetheless, it says be subject to the elders. And then this is, this is the, the important piece, verse five. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So elders, leaders, those who are younger, those who are older, those who are millennials, those who are boomers, those who are Xers, all of us, people who talk, people who have speaking gifts, people who have helping gifts, everybody in all of the categories, people who serve behind the scenes, every single person, every one of us has a solution for the pressures that we're facing. You know, remember, these churches, these people, they were under significant pressure in society. It can be really tempting when you're under pressure to lash out at each other. It can be really tempting to domineer authority over each other. It can be really tempting to rebel against authority. So, so you know what your solution to all of the pressure is? Christian, your solution to pressure is humility. Your solution to pressure is humility. So what does that mean? Christians, we die to self and seek the glory of God above all else. That's what we do. That's our primary calling. Like if you break it down at the end of the day, we die to self and seek the glory of God above all else. So we set aside preferences for the glory of God. We apologize for the glory of God. We forgive for the glory of God. We make decisions for the glory of God. We give each other a fair hearing for the glory of God. We confess sin to each other for the glory of God. We believe the best in our brothers and sisters for the glory of God. We mutually submit for the glory of God. Like all of this happens. We're quick to listen. We seek to understand. We think of others as more important than ourselves. Like all of this goes into the kinds of things that we're supposed to put on as we operate in the church body. These 
are the things that we're all called to, not just elders and not just uh, the church body, but every single person. Verse six, he goes on. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it's interesting, the picture that the Peter, that he gives here, it's as if God's hand is actually the thing that's creating the pressure. He's saying, under the mighty hand of God. Like, the the hand of God is actually coming down on you. It's the thing that's creating the pressure. It's as if, like, God actually wants us to learn a lesson here. That the key thing that we could take away, above all else, is humility that is grounded in trust and reliance on God. Because that's what creates true humility. That's what creates deep humility. It's long-lasting Christian humility. It's this belief that I don't need to take what's mine because God has given me every need. He's taken care of every need in Christ. So Christian, your solution to pressure is humility. And that's important because he's now about to mention the most significant pressure point that we all face. So, so we started with pressures on the elders. Then he talks about kind of the solution that we're all to have in the midst of pressure. Now he's talking about the pressures that we all face. And this is a really significant pressure. So in verse eight, it says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We will not be able to effectively be the church and do what the church is called to do if we don't quickly understand a very constant reality that is always facing us. Satan wants to tear churches and Christians apart. Satan wants, and I know it's Christmas season, don't get Satan confused with Santa. Santa does not want to tear Christians and churches apart. No, Satan wants to tear Christians and churches apart. So if you're, if you're Christian, this is, this is what we understand from Scripture. If you're a Christian with the Holy Spirit inside of you, Satan cannot make you do anything. But here's what he will do. He will roar at you. He will uh, put a whole lot of temptations in front of you in different places. He'll create opportunities for you to compromise. He'll create a situation that might make you want to lash out. He'll, uh, he'll create situations that might make you want to run away. He'll make it really easy for leaders to become domineering in their contexts. He'll stir up ideas of rebellion am- amongst people. This is just the, how he operates, and, and, and this is what he's waiting to see. He's waiting to see how you respond to these roars that he makes. He wants to know how you're going to respond. He's waiting to see like, if you'll resist or if you'll give in. Because the moment you give in, that's when he has the opportunity to sink his teeth in. That's when he has a shot to create division. That's when the fangs of addiction can grab somebody. That's when anger can stir up more anger. And so the thing that we all have to to understand is that there is a constant and legitimate threat to the integrity of this church all the time because Satan is constantly looking for opportunities to tear Christians and churches apart. He's constantly looking for opportunities to tear this church and the Christians here apart. 
And he will do everything he can to tempt us corporately and to tempt us individually to compromise in purity, to compromise in humility, to compromise in our love for each other because his goal, his mission, the thing that he is operating on is to make sure that the kingdom of God does not move forward. So verse nine, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So verse nine says resist. You think about it, resist our solution to pressure, all of this stuff, to clothe yourselves with humility. The way we resist, clothe yourselves with humility. Pray for the endurance of your brothers and sisters around the world as they are facing the various pressures that come against. And and you know what? As he continues to roar, do the things that First Peter has encouraged us to do. Arm yourself with protocols. Strive for purity. Keep your hope set in Christ. Resist him. And then, and then it's interesting that he says this bit about your brothers and sisters, the brotherhood throughout the world. Remember, you're not alone. Whatever pressure that we're facing, Christians around the world are facing pressures thousands of times worse, and you know what? By the grace of God, they are remaining faithful. They are continuing on. They stand firm. They're resisting Satan. The gates of hell are not prevailing against the church in those situations. So continue resisting. That's the encouragement. Okay, verse 10 and verse 11. This is the, some of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. Grace is just, think of it as blessing, gift. The God of every single blessing that is out there who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. This is what he's gonna do for you. He will restore you. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you know what? The, the, everybody gets the same motivation that the elders get. It's not just the elders who receive the unfading fading crown of glory. It's everybody, everybody who carries out these things. These things are what we are, as a church are called to put on and carry out. And, and at the end of the day, after even, even as the pressure increases, even if the, the pressure is tenfold or a hundredfold or a thousandfold what we might be facing right now, the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. That's the promise. Okay, so what? So what? Number one, elders shepherd like Jesus, church body submit like Jesus. Elders shepherd like Jesus, church body submit like Jesus. And, and instead of explaining what this looks like, I just want to read a passage for you. This comes from the book of Philippians, chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Elders, shepherd like Jesus. Church body, submit like Jesus. 
So what, number two? Fight pressure with love. Verses 13 and 14, the very end of 1 Peter, this is what Peter says. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So I'm not gonna like start any sort of kissing thing here, don't worry, we're all good. Um, uh, but their kiss, their kiss is like our hug. I mean, some people don't like hugs, I just figured that out today. <laughs> For, uh, some people, some people aren't, aren't fans of hugs, but, uh, but what does a hug do? When you give somebody a hug, what does a hug do? A hug acknowledges that love exists here. A hug is a physical act that acknowledges love exists here. The last thing that you want to do, you know, like when, when things get tense, when pressure increases in the church and you have relationships that exist, you know, like the, the last thing that you want to do in, in the midst of those challenges is hug somebody, but when you hug them, you make a physical acknowledgement that love still exists here in spite of whatever we're facing. It's a decision to physically acknowledge those things, and there's something about that physical acknowledgement that actually has the power to overcome the tension that you're currently facing. There's something about acknowledging that with, with your body. Okay, so, so now for our people who, who don't love hugs, maybe hugs aren't your way of showing love, but whatever it is, there are ways that you have to show people love. Do them. Find ways to actively acknowledge that love exists in these relationships. Because the more you reinforce that acknowledgement, the more likely it is that people will respond to one another in love and humility when pressure starts to get higher and higher. So, uh, and with a personal note. So, ABC, I've been at this church nearly one year, nearly one year. Um, so I wanna say, I wanna say two things. Yeah, th- th- thanks man. So you won't hug me, so, so you, had to, you had to say. <laughs> it's <all> good. <laughs> This church has loved me and my family so well. That just what we have been able to experience from you all, I, I have nothing but gratefulness in my heart for all of you. And I say that, like, it just, you all mean so much to us. So thank you. Thank you for the ways that you have loved us. So uh, number two, the next thing I want to say. So uh, there are these, uh, you know, when, when somebody new comes into a place, you get this thing called the honeymoon period, and you've probably heard of the honeymoon period. And then right after the honeymoon period comes actually like the worst part, which is culture shock, right? Uh, culture shock is the, the next step. And so, uh, so you know, I, I, we're not there yet, I don't think. Maybe we are, and I just don't know about it yet. But I want, I want us all to be prepared for the fact that very soon, like just like as you, common knowledge and wisdom tells me that we are probably going to be walking into a season of culture shock very soon. And there's a strong chance that I'm going to do things that will very likely hurt some of you, not with the intention of hurting you, obviously, but I'm just like, I'm going to do it, and it's going to happen, and, and there will be feelings hurt. And so I don't plan on doing these things, but, but, but common wisdom tells me that this is the case. And and this season, whatever, the, whatever may happen in this next season, uh, the relationships in this church will be vulnerable. 
will be bound, because Satan is roaring like a lion. He's looking for any opportunity he can to attack. And pressure, in some cases, might actually feel very high. And the call on all of us in the midst of that is this, to resist him. To clothe ourselves in humility. To have conversations with each other. To work to reinforce with each other, to work particularly hard in this season, to to reinforce with each other the kind of love that exists in these relationships. And to continue serving and loving together for the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as I just reflect on on the last almost year, (laughs) I just, I am so grateful for the family that you have provided for for Andrea and Autumn and I. I am am grateful for the love that has already existed here and has so clearly been evident and strong. And Father, I pray that you would give us all the awareness that we need, the strength that we need to continue loving each other well in the midst of this. Lord, to continue clothing ourselves with humility. Lord, would you give us understanding? Would you give us grace for each other? Lord, would you help us to have a loyalty to Jesus and truth in the midst of all of this? And Lord, would you just make it very clear your love for us and the love that you intend us to share with each other. So Father, thank you just for this morning. Thank you for for your word. Thank you for First Peter and just um, uh, what you're going to do in this church through through those words, and Father, I, I pray that you would um, you would keep us focused on exactly what it is that you're calling us to do as we live out this Christ life in the midst of Bartlett and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods. Lord, as we seek to be the church and do what the church is called to do, Lord, for all these things we trust you and we ask you to work them out in us and through us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.